Welcome to episode 41 of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Jessica. On today's episode, we're doing a roundup of some really interesting LibGuide projects. On our last LibGuide episode, number 23, we talked about experiences and some pie-in-the-sky ideas. But this episode, we're focusing on some cool projects by other librarians. But before we get started with our conversation, how are you doing and anything exciting happening this week? So this week, I'm actually virtually attending the SUNY Law Conference, the State University of New York. Um, And it's been pretty interesting. Um, Today was day two. So I've kind of done stuff from across um, the library spectrum, you know, the data good um, beginning workshop on critical information literacy. Then um, there was something about social media, um, which was helpful because I, I think we need to kind of revamp our social media and um, oh, something about um, using the jigsaw method for professional development. So there's been some cool stuff. Um, there's one more day tomorrow that I'm going to attend as well. Uh, But other than that, just doing lots of pre-baby stuff, like, you know, packing the hospital bag, making sure things are accessible around the house and, um, you know, making plans for uh, family to help out, all that kind of stuff. Um, And work has been super supportive, which is helpful. I only have another week left of work. So I think uh, (laughs) everybody's just kind of accepted that I'm on my way out for a bit. So I'm, uh, I'm on my own for a little bit for the next week, just closing up projects. So what about you? Um, so I am almost in my second month of my new job as yay. Yeah, <laughs> of a public library. So yay. Um, you know, I'm starting to feel more comfortable in it than I thought I would. I really thought it would take me a lot longer to acclimate, but I, I'm feeling there. Um, it's still strange you know, being in public, but I'm really so engaged. There's so much to learn and so much to do. And the days just fly by. Uh, But there's two kind of cool things going on right now that happened this week. Um, I got to meet a few VIP people from the community. And it's like really weird. Like I met a senator and (laughs) I met the mayor at a village board meeting. So it was like never, never in my wildest dreams that I ever think I'd be meeting these types of people and interacting with them right so that was kind of cool um so another thing that's going on is we're just starting to work on our long-range plan at the library which is like similar to a strategic plan for those academic librarians out there um so I've been elbow deep into other libraries long-range plans and it's just like really exciting it's great to be future planning and you know I'm all about a plan so This is going to be a six month process, planning process to develop this new long range plan. Um, You know, it's going to include focus groups with the community, different stakeholders, survey questions, compiling the data and then actually writing the actual plan and then, you know, figuring out a way to execute it. So, you know, this is totally my speed. I'm so looking forward to it. I love a good plan. Hopefully it'll be a good plan. We'll see. <laughs> it does sound right up your alley. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, totally my thing. So just to intro the topic, um, as we mentioned before, our last LibGuides episode was really about our experiences and how we've used the product in the past. Whereas this episode, we want to feature some great projects that we've seen, which make use of them to solve instructional problems or share information in a different way. Uh, We're just summarizing the works of these projects, so we'll definitely include links to the authors and content in the show notes as well. 
So the first project that we wanted to highlight is the Lords Project at the Robert Kennedy Library at uh, California Polytechnic State. Um, it's spearheaded by Jamie Ding, who is um, a digital publishing fellow. So LORDS stands for LibGuides Open Review Discussion Sessions, and this is a description of the project that comes right from one of their guides. Quote, LibGuides are a prevalent tool in libraries, and yet often their tool, often their use as a tool is taken at face value. So used as pointers towards knowledge, LibGuides should really be a crucial part of creating anti-racist library institutions. In understanding such tools and how to implement such criticality, the LibGuide open review discussion sessions provide a space for California tech, or I'm sorry, California state university systems for practitioners to come together to discuss uh, reference, publishing, critical digital pedagogy, critical race theory, um, and our work in libraries working towards holding criticality to fight against the farce of neutrality within knowledge organizations, end quote. So that's their introduction on their LibGuide, which again, like I said, we'll include in the show notes for lots more information. Um, so just thinking a little bit about why we thought this project was interesting is, you know, if we think of LibGuides as places where we share scholarship, we share resources um, from within publishing communities and disciplines, and also include some instructional tools, um, this review process is a tool itself that can be used to look at your LibGuides through this, like, critical lens aimed at incorporating more voices, different perspectives, and um, more critical thinking about um, non-white, non-cisgendered identities, putting those into our guides. And, you know, this has been a goal of many institutions, some for a while, some more recently. Um, sometimes there aren't really concrete methods to make our guides like walk the walk, so to speak. And this is one tool uh, that they've put together uh, that can be used to do that and accomplish that goal. So one example of a change to their guides that they've made based on this review process is to include a statement on recognizing bias in academic scholarship and how limited the perspectives might be in our databases. Uh, and then other guide updates might be uh, making them more accessible, acknowledging the positionality of, of the guide authors themselves, you know, the librarians who make these guides, um, including references to BIPOC representation or lack thereof in whatever discipline you're um, creating a guide about and then directly linking to um, BIPOC scholars. So um, this project was really um, organized to be a Cal Poly University system um, evaluation project, but their meetings that they have are open. So you can actually submit your guide to be reviewed and then like visit a, um, a review session and have your guides looked at um, to see how you can incorporate uh, some of their uh, rubrics and methodologies into your guides. Uh, so <coughs> I, I hope I've done the project justice in my minor explanation, but like I said, we'll include the link in our show notes. And that includes a great webinar presented by uh, Jamie Ding and provides um, examples and discussions. So if this is interesting to you, that might be worth uh, checking out. Hmm. Uh, thanks for that description. You know, this is such an amazing resource. You know, as we've talked about in many episodes pre uh, previously, you know, it's always a goal of mine to create amazing LibGuides. And this is just beyond anything that I would have ever thought to do myself. Um, while I do think it is a very lofty thing to focus on, uh, but, you know, if you could submit one guide and let them do the work, 
that's great. Um, or maybe, you know, you run your own workshop with the rubric they provide and then make a plan to actually make the changes. That's also great too. Um, I really do love the rubric um, in some respects, but I do see some potential issues. Um, some people might, so in part, part of the rubric is about um, the personal, the author. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people just might not want to share that kind of information about themselves. You know, um, it doesn't mean their libguide isn't great. Uh, They also might not want to share their social media links or their pronouns, you know, that's just maybe personal to them, uh, too personal to share in a work setting. Also, uh, the racial awareness um, might always not be applicable. Um, All for it. I'm, you know, I'm all for it. But um, I was looking through some of their rubrics. So on the LibGuide, what I think is really great is every time they review a LibGuide, they all provide their rubrics and their responses to the rubric. Yes. And it's so great to see their feedback and how they're interpreting the rubric and what their feedback is on a particular LibGuide. But I did notice that probably like the first five or six, um, I think the, the category of racial awareness is like the lowest category is called silent, which means it's like non-existent. There is no racial awareness. More often than not, there were a lot of LibGuides that got that rating. Um, And I think that's why this project is great. But I also think it might be a challenge for some people, too. So, um, you know, I don't know. I think it's a great lofty goal. I think it's exciting. Um, So I I look forward to seeing that change maybe in the future as people become more aware of this this project. Yeah, I watched her webinar and I think, um, you know, she even suggested that at the very least, you know, including that, uh, that um, the bias message in your mm-hmm. discipline is a great place to start. Yeah. It at least acknowledges that, you know, the, the information on your guide is probably going to include a lot of bias towards certain voices and perspectives. Um, but we're working towards changing that. Um, so I think that's, that's at least um, a good place to start. And their FAQs were very helpful too, because they talk mm-hmm. about like some of the things that you mentioned, like, well, you know, how do I even evaluate a scholar's race to include them in, in my guide? And they have some great information on that. And, um, you know, how do I get this started in my institution if people, you know, are, if we're not having these conversations yet? Uh, so their FAQ is a great place to start for some of those questions as well. Mm, yeah, you know, this almost reminds me of that um, really great rubric that we created for our learning objects back at Berkeley, where we wanted to make sure that they hit certain categories. Um, right. It's just, it's a, I think it's a great way to measure and make sure that like you're producing work that you're proud of and that you feel is inclusive. So I really, really love this project. Yeah. So the second resource that we want to, to highlight is from uh, Bronwyn Maxson and Mandy Garcia at the University of Oregon on how to make guides more instructional and interactive rather than just a list of resources, which, you know, sort of does a disservice to to students. And we've talked about this before as a goal of our guides. And I really liked how they framed the various perspectives that you want to take into consideration to make them more valuable. So, you know, first being the difference between being the sage on the stage versus a true guide. You know, those guides that are just lists are really just you know, here I'm giving you the information and you should put it into your brain. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, They also discuss questioning the purpose of guides, which really should be promoting inquiry and research as inquiry rather than just locating sources, because that's not just what the research process is about. So in their presentation, they show the difference between a pathfinder guide, which is very text-based. The pages are grouped by source type rather than by research process um, sections. And then they assume that the student already knows how to complete the research, or we're really just giving them the resources to go to. Whereas the pedagogically focused guide has pages that address the research process rather than sources themselves. And then it includes various media types like images, videos, um, and asks students to think about the information on the guide in relation to their topic. So much more interactive. Uh, And this guide type really aligns better with accessibility and methods from universal design. Um, Although sometimes making graphics can be a challenge for some people, which, you know, obviously that totally is, uh, is normal, but they include great tips on how to a create accessible graphics, but then also how to translate those um, translate the graphics into a text that is um, accessible as well for those who can't see graphics. So they kind of show you both sides of that. Um, And one of my favorite parts of their research process guide was asking reflective questions on each page to prompt the students to reflect on the information in relation to their research strategies and the assignment. So, for example, is your topic too broad? Is your topic too specific? Um, You know, here's where to head in the guide next to figure that out and move on with the process. So it's not just, you know, telling them how to make their um, their topic perfect but really using their uh, topic as an example and having them think through the process. So between their presentation and then their example of their research guide, I was really inspired to uh, take a look at my guides and see where I could apply some of these questions and principles. I loved everything about this (laughs) idea. I, you know, this is what I always strive for. I, I love the images. I love the graphics, the process. Um, I love the pedagogical language, but um, it's been something that, you know, when I was at Berkeley, we struggled with. Um, We always struggled. What should we title the pages? Um, I like the shortness of the find this, evaluate, use. I love that. But some of my colleagues, you know, uh, felt that our students wouldn't know what that meant. Like, it's so vague to them, whereas the other guides were like, government resources or books like that was so clear to them Mm -hmm. you know it made sense to me but I also have an instructional design background so like I have a different perspective so it was this constant push and pull of what our libguide pages should be called and are we giving them a guide or are we giving them an experience Um, you know I I felt the same way as these authors that like I wanted it to be engaging and I wanted it to walk students through the process and not necessarily just throw information at them. You know, I started to train my librarians um, at the public library on LibGuides. Um, LibGuides have never been used before at this library. So I'm excited for this opportunity to set the standard of taking the pedagogical approach. Now, obviously, slightly different audience. It's going to be public. So it could be kids. Um, It could be adults, it could be first time researchers. So I'm excited to see how I could apply this in a public library setting without being too complicated. But 
I'm very image based to begin with. So I, I definitely see myself at least using images and infographics um, to um, share my information. But I loved in the presentation that you linked to where they show you the draft and then the final version or like mm -hmm. the original and then like the revamp, like it's so cool. And I think it really is important. I can remember that when I was working with two other colleagues on our, um, on our library orientation, we had this amazing idea and we wrote it, you know, we made it on a, on a piece of paper. And then we transferred it from a piece of paper to a plain PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And we took that idea and we evolved it into a interactive, you know, resource in Articulate. So it's like it evolved over time. And I would love to see people think of their LibGuides as that as well. Like, how do I take this idea and just make it more interactive and evolve? So um, definitely check this out if you're looking to have people engage with your, your LibGuide for longer um and and stay on the guide right exactly it's like I started to think about a guide as like a class yeah. <laughs> like we're trying to teach something not just show something so how do we make this more instructional and this sometimes I think it's hard to to wrap our heads around that yeah. um it still becomes very text-based where you're telling them things um but I liked how theirs was just, sometimes you just need an example for it to click. Yeah. Just like yeah. a student, right? So for me, it was like just the, a box of like pause to reflect and asking reflection questions. It was like, oh my God, that's so simple. <laughs> but like, but it's the thing I needed to switch how my brain thought about it. I guess that was my threshold concept. I couldn't get past that. Yeah. So they helped me get past that. Um, and so now I feel like I have all these ideas that I want to change things to. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think the two best live guides we've ever put together was the internship live guide. Oh yeah. Oh, that guide, live guide was just amazing. Like we just, we literally walked them through every part of that research process. Right. And we had the questions and the time stamps and the, the keyword suggestions. Like it was literally like everything's in the live guide. Yep. It will walk you through it, you know? And then the other live guide that I loved but seemed to confuse our, our students and our faculty was our honors LibGuide, where we had our whole honors program on there for the, for the thesis project. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a constant push and pull about what it should look like, how should it be organized? And like, to me, it made so much sense, but they just could not wrap their head around it. Uh, so that's just a perfect example of like, what makes sense to you might not make sense to your, to your population. Right. I mean, and not to mention that I think students just struggled with the library versus the teaching part yeah. of that, that program. It was like, if the library stuff was more embedded into the, the stuff the faculty did, maybe they would be less confused, but, and I think they got over it by like the third semester of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first two that was a little hard for them to figure everything out. Yeah. 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 So the last one that we want to highlight is from the Alamance County Public Library. Um, this is not as revolutionary as the other two, but I think it's a very cool toolkit. It's, so it's a book club toolkit. What I really loved about this resource is that it's a great way to encourage people to use your library and your resources. So in this toolkit, it provides patrons 
with how to start your own book club. Um, and I think it's great because it allows you to still provide a resource. Um, you know, there might be some instances where someone might not be able to attend your book clubs at your library, but they have their own book club, or maybe their book club includes people from different states. Um, so, you know, this idea of this toolkit allows us to still provide a resource and encourage book clubs. Um, and I think it could be transformed to so many different audiences, you know, in public, they have it parsed out by age group, which is great. But in an academic setting, they could focus on faculty toolkits, student organization toolkits, maybe degree programs that could include a book club for students and staff and faculty in a particular department. You know, I really think the possibilities are endless. You know, like I said, I know it's not a revolutionary idea, but it's just such a simple and transferable idea. And it, it, it's also putting this into the hands of our users and encouraging them to own it. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe that first step for people is like, I don't know how to, what do we talk about about the book? Right. And it looks like they have discussion questions or maybe they're struggling with picking a book or, you know, I know in our staff development um, club, people would say like, I wanted to read an article about this particular topic, but I didn't know where to start. Yeah. Because there's just so many things being shared out there. So if there was a nonfiction book club, um, a book club kit, right? There could just be the best books on these particular topics mm -hmm. that are happening right now. You know, maybe people want to learn more about like um, a particular person or a particular political idea or you know, we were just talking about the Lord's Project, something about anti-racism. Maybe they want to start that, but they're nervous about picking the, the wrong book. You know, that could be a whole um, section, too, of helping people just kind of get started. Right. The process, right. And it provides them all the resources to do so. Yeah. Like on, on, I can almost see like a best practices, like, like what does the timeline look like to host a right. successful book club? How far in advance do you have to share the book pick? Um, how do you do a book pick? Um, yeah, right. What kind of questions foster discussion. What kind of questions kill discussion? Exactly. You know, just stuff like that. Or how do you regain control of your discussion? Because sometimes yeah. people go right. off topic. You know, so I could just I could just envision it now, where like I said, this could be transferred to any group setting um, and any topic. So like this book club is like one example, but like. Like I said, you could do this for like student organizations too. Like how to use the library resources to support your organization. Here's the toolkit for student organizations collaborating with the library, you know, or, or same thing with the faculty. So the possibilities are endless. I just really love this idea that it was maybe we don't need to be so involved in what you want to do, but we're here to help you get it mm -hmm. off the ground. And in this case, the, the note on the guide says that they actually have physical copies yeah. of the books as well. So you could actually go to the library and get copies of the books, you know, in their particular case, which I think is kind of cool too. I mean, you don't have to offer that um, if you don't have the resources to, to do that. But at the same time, it's kind of cool as an option as well, because you're also getting checkouts and statistics from checking out all those books to these people doing the book. Right. Club. Like if you had like a small book club, you could say, okay, this is a book club. This, this particular toolkit for this book, we have seven copies. We'll right. put it on the reserve shelf and you could check it out as a kit. Yeah. 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 And it's still like building relationships, right? You're getting 
people into the library to check out their copy for the book club. And then maybe they'll check out something else. They'll get to know your librarians. They get to know you. They might see a program flyer. So uh, there's a lot of that relationship building happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exciting things. Please take a look at them. And um, if you do try to um, use the rubric for your LibGuides, let us know. We'd love to see how you transform your LibGuide. Um, if you're look, if you've, you know, implemented some of the ideas from our second example, where you've made it a little more interactive and engaging, we'd love to see those as well. Um, you know, we'll share them on our Twitter page. We'll highlight them in our newsletter. Um, just send it to us. We'd love to, we'd love to share it with our audience and our, and our community. So now's the point in the show where we share a triumph, a fail, or a recommendation. So what do you have for us today? Um, I have a triumph and a fail, both kind of minor, but still, still there. <laughs> um, so for my triumph, I started a project with our um, instruction team to create a series of branded videos for our YouTube page. Uh, it's called Five Minutes to Better Research, which came out of the 10 Minutes to Better Research uh, Zoom series that I tried to do with um, our New York City uh, library director, but a lot of students didn't attend, which, you know, with the pandemic and everything, we get it. There was low attendance, but we tried to make the best of it by making this YouTube series. Uh, and all the videos are going to be short, less than five minutes. And we're focusing on like the major concepts that students need to hopefully get them that information at the point of need on our website, um, making them cohesive. So they all have the same opening images, the same music, the same PowerPoint slide template with our contact information. And so far we have uh, four videos up that I created just so that I could get the project started before I go on leave. It was kind of like, hey, I'm starting this project. So here, everybody go do the work. <laughs> and I felt, <laughs> it felt terrible with it looking like that. Um, but it was also cool because we are also kind of using Camtasia to just brand videos that we've already created. Mm. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel with every single video. Like we have a good Google Scholar video on linking up our PACE library resources to Google Scholar. It was a two minute video. So I just used Camtasia to add the branded opening, right? So, yeah. um, so that was helpful uh, and kind of part of the triumph too of, of not reinventing the wheel and making ourselves crazy. Um, and I got a set of procedures in place as well. So, you know, for people who have never uh, or have only used Camtasia once or twice, like how to add the branded opening, how to use the PowerPoint slide, you know, a spreadsheet of, you know, all the descriptions of all the videos. So that was all, all a, a cool triumph. So this project is started, I can go on leave. And when I come back, we'll have, you know, a bunch of different videos on this um, YouTube playlist. And I'll include the what I started on the playlist in the show notes, if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, but my one fail in the project was not entirely thinking through the accessibility beforehand of certain parts. Like we did really well with a lot of things like planning for captions and narrating the visuals and using YouTube timestamps. But one thing that I didn't think about was creating the final contact us section. After I started scripts for a few videos and then I even recorded one, I realized that some people just say, quote, like visit our website to chat with a librarian. You know, other people put up slides with contact options and other people just say, contact a librarian for help, which everybody's doing different things. And I created um, a standardized contact slide and I thought that that had solved the issue, but then I realized that it's really not accessible 
unless you read the text and it's part of the transcript <laughs> or the captions. So um, we're, we decided that we just are going to put the description. We're going to put the contact information into the description of the YouTube video, which then makes it accessible via screen reader um, and then direct people verbally in the video to the description um, because it's, it, otherwise it just wasn't going to work out, um, having all that content up there with our phone number and, um, how to access chat and how to make a zoom appointment and all of that. So we put that all in the, uh, in the YouTube description, but that kind of felt like a fail where I had started a bunch of videos and I had them all ready to export in Camtasia. And then I was like, "Uh Oh, this doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how that is with a project. So I had to kind of go back to everybody and be like, um, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> but we fixed it and it's, it's no longer a fail, but it was a fail for a minute. Oh, it sounds so exciting though. I'm always like, I love a catchy branded title. So I think right? exciting, <laughs> you know, five minutes to better research. I love that. I used to do something like that. Not like that, but I used to play with numbers and I called it um, 10 things you need to know in 10 minutes. Right. Um, and it was great. It was fun while it lasted, but it was really catchy. Cause like people were like, Oh, 10 minutes. I got 10 minutes, you know? That was definitely one thing that I wanted to do outreach wise when I started at Pace too. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the panorama started and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. we had to go home. So, but now normal semester in October, I feel like my return from maternity leave will be doubly triumphant. Oh, that's so like, exciting. I go back to work and I get to do in-person outreach. It's going to be so exciting. Oh, that is exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I have... You? To me, I have a recommendation and what I think might be a triumph. I don't know yet to be determined. So my recommendation is if you're tired of using PowerPoint or Google Slides, try Canva presentations. I love it. I just did a workshop um, and I used, I was just going to download a template, but I ended up actually using everything that they offered and like extra little elements and um, animations. And it was just so great because the, the animations were just like so subtle and, but it was engaging. I got so many compliments on the presentation. Like I couldn't believe it. It was just so, it was just refreshing. And like the animations were so slight. Like if I was like talking about a checklist, I had like um, an animation where like it would just do like a check uh, on the, the bullet point of my list and people just loved it like it was so crazy like it was just something so simple I mean it was a little weird doing a whole presentation in Canva like creating it um, but it, it was worth it because it just came out like such a clean presentation it's so funny that you mentioned that too because that's where I created the branded opening slide for my <laughs> for my video oh, look at that <laughs> I just took a presentation that yeah. I liked and deleted all the other slides except the first one yes. and then added animations so that like the, um, you know, the five minutes to better research flashes on the screen a little yes. bit, like yes. the paste logo comes in a little bit. And, uh, and then I think in Camtasia, I added the audio, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's how I made the branded opening beginning too, from Canva. Uh, oh, look Canva at that. Yeah. And it is, you're right. It's so easy. The animations can be subtle or they can be more in your face. So it does provide just like a new revamp to what you are already doing. It's cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. So definitely try it. Even if you're like, we've talked about, I think in our 21 tips for 21, um, taking the time to redo a presentation for the next semester, try to do one in Canva because it's so cool. So my possible triumph is I really want the library at where my, my new library to get out more in the public. And I, and I wanted us to do a community project, uh, something like give back to the community. And like, we're like, well, what are we going to do? We got to do something different. We got to do something that we haven't done before. That's exciting. But like, we couldn't decide what to do. And then it's like, it just fell in my lap. I got an email one day through one of the listservs that I follow. And it was, there's um, this big, um, apparently it's a big thing in New York. I don't know if they do it in other states, but it's called the Great Give Back. Mm. And it's like a statewide initiative where for like one week in October, I think it's like the second or third week in October, um, all these different libraries do some type of community like give back to to their community and it's like they also have the patrons participate so it's like mm -hmm. um they did one thing where like the easy thing the typical like food pantry kind of thing but then like they also did something with um with quilt making like the kids made uh, a quilt square and then they put the quilt together um one other project was um they made blankets for animals in animal shelters. Like it was just so perfect. Like I was looking for something like that and it just kind of fell into my lap. So I'm counting that as a triumph. And hopefully when we, if we, if we implement it, I'll have an official triumph to share um, in October after it's passed. Yay. <laughs> that is exciting. Yep. Yeah, so stay tuned. So that wraps up another episode of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching. Uh, here's where you can find us. You can find the podcast at librarian underscore guide. You can find Jessica at librarygeek611. You can find me, Amanda, at historybuff820. And you can always email us at infolitteachingpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. We would love to hear from you in the reviews as well.